In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Today is Father's Day, if you've looked at your calendars. Maybe some of you received uh, a gift this morning, as I did from, from my family. And I was also promised a nap this afternoon. But I wanted to spend just a couple of seconds here this morning speaking about what fatherhood is from a biblical standpoint. In the media today, fathers are often portrayed as foolish, kind of silly, bordering on dumb. You've all seen the stereotypes in television shows and cartoons and things like that. But the scriptures tell us that all fatherhood is known because we have a God who has called himself our Father. From him come all things, as we have confessed in the Creed. He is the one that makes fatherhood known among us. And so as Christians, we look to the office of Father as a picture, a small picture of what the uh, what our God truly is to us. Not a God who simply sits up in heaven looking to smash us when we do wrong, but a Father in heaven who invites us to himself that he might bind up our wounds and carry us home rejoicing. Dear saints, this is what fatherhood is. God is the picture of fatherhood and today we celebrate those earthly fathers that he gives to us. Without further ado, our text for today is the epistle from 1 Peter. <laughs> when I was a kid, there was a wrestler, and some of you will probably know who I'm talking about, who had a catchphrase that he often repeated, the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. Now, we don't look to professional wrestling for our theology, thanks be to God. But this does bring up an interesting thought experiment about our current cultural fascination with pride. Surely you've heard something or two about pride this month. But let's think about what pride is. When it's boiled down, pride is nothing more than a self love. We are often told that we have to love ourselves before we can love someone else, but is that really the case? St. John, in his first epistle, writes, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here, John tells us that we learn what love is by being loved by another, and namely, in this case, by God himself. He goes on to say that God's love is the source of our love for others. The doctrine of pride that, his, that has invaded our culture is a false doctrine. You don't learn to love your neighbor by loving yourself. Self-love is the way sinners are already wired. It comes right out of our fallen condition. In fact, this is a pretty good definition of what original sin is. You don't need to teach anyone to love himself. We need to be taught how to love our neighbor. Pride loves self. But humility, as St. Peter addresses us today, 
teaches us to love one another. Today, Peter places before us the Lord Jesus as an example of this humility that far from debasing anyone is actually the time and the place of exaltation. It is the crucified Christ who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as we have confessed in the Creed, and he will come from there to judge the living and the dead. But before that, Christ faced mockery, spitting, whipping, and public humiliation of crucifixion without a single word of complaint. He blessed those who persecuted him, and he prayed for those who spitefully mistreated him. And now, after that humiliation, is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords, and on the last day, everyone will appear before him to be judged. Pride, on the other hand, always leads to a fall. It's the nature of things. Solomon, in his wisdom, wrote, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Later, he says, and pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. St. Paul, in listing the qualifications of what a pastor ought to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, identifies pride as a sin that not only disqualifies a man from the pastoral office, but it is the sin specifically that brought condemnation upon the devil himself. Where pride reigns, the devil is in control. The father of lies is the father of the great boast. And this pride takes many different forms, conforming itself to the specific weakness of the individual. It is not always easy to identify pride for what it is because the father of pride is, as I said, the father of lies with his clever deceptions to disguise sin as virtue. The devil strikes when we are weak from suffering. We call ourselves children of God. God calls us his children in baptism. But are we really? Have you ever suffered? And it seemed like at that moment, in that time, that God didn't really care for you. In those struggles, it may have seemed apparent that you were anything but God's child. Sometimes, it seems that God doesn't have our best interests in mind, or that he isn't even thinking about us at all. Humility in the face of suffering seems to be a resignation to defeat. And it is in that moment that the devil strikes. He twists up our minds and cons us into judging God by our own circumstances and by our own standards. He who tempted Eve with the snotty and sneering assault on God's word by asking, did God really say, has not really changed his strategy one bit in the past 6,000 or so years. Why would he? It still works. So these two things go together. Casting our cares on God who cares for us and standing up against the devil. The devil's, the devil's number one lie is his assault against God's grace. In his attacks on the gospel, he parades to us as an angel of light, 
but his is a message of darkness and despair. So let's take that first one first. Cast all your cares on the one who cares for you. Here, the devil roars out his contradiction. He portrays our loving and gracious father as a mean-spirited bully who is unwilling to forgive and unwilling to give you the help that you need. And of course, he always has access to the judgment of the religious holier-than-thou types who question God's grace. Jesus portrays the grace of God in sincerity and truth as he tells the two stories of joy of the one lost sheep and the one lost coin as pictures of the joy in heaven over just one lost sinner who repents. It is this faith, this simple childlike faith in the forgiveness of sins that the devil attacks. Faith looks at our suffering, our cares, our losses, and whatever in life makes us anxious and afraid, and it casts those cares upon our God. Faith knows God is not punishing us when life is hard. Faith trusts that God looks at us through the obedience of suffering, the suffering of his son, and sees us as his dear children, robed in the white robe of Christ's righteousness. This faith, which is precious to God, is hated by the devil. He's likened to a roaring lion. And when do lions usually roar? When they're hungry. And the devil is hungry for our souls. He wants to kill our souls by destroying our faith. This is why St. Peter tells us that we must resist him steadfast in the faith. What is the faith? The faith is the body of Christian teaching, all of it. The faith isn't our pious feelings or religious sentiments. It is the totality of what God reveals to us in his holy word. That revelation is centered on one man, on Jesus Christ, and his grace for the one lost sheep and the one lost coin, even when it seems foolish to do so. It is the gospel of Christ that saves. And that is why the devil wants to rip this gospel out of our hearts. He uses our troubles and our misfortunes to persuade us that God is out to get us. But we must judge according to God's word. Luther, in his lectures on Genesis, says this. Moreover, these truths should be carefully impressed and taught lest we yield to the flesh when we are tried or to our reason when we disregard the word. For it is not God who torments you if you believe in Christ. It is the devil. He hates you and looks for opportunities to trouble you. But you will say, I I realize I am a sinner, therefore I am not a Christian. Therefore, if any befalls me, it is sent by an angry God. But this conclusion is false. For those who believe in the forgiveness of sins are Christians. Therefore, if you believe in Christ, if you gladly hear his word and receive it in faith, you are a true Christian and your sins do not stand in the way. Hence, if any misfortune befalls you, conclude boldly that it is from the devil 
and does not mean that God is unfriendly toward you, except insofar as he let this happen as a trial, in order to put your faith to test you for your own good. So far, Luther. So what do we learn from that? Well, the devil wants to drive us away from God's word when you are hurting because he knows that it is the grace of God that is sufficient for us in every single need. He knows that the God of grace will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you through that word. He will restore you. He will bring healing to all the hurts that the devil and the world have caused you. He will confirm you. He will see to it that you stand firm under the devil's attacks. He will strengthen you. In your weakness, he will make you strong. He will establish you. He will take away all your anxieties and worries and doubts, and he will bring you the peace that passes all human understanding. And all of this, dear saints, comes to us through his word. The Bible teaches us that the devil is bound. The so-called thousand-year reign of Christ on earth is not something that awaits his return. It is right now, right here in this place. The devil is bound up in chains wherever the Christian takes refuge in the gospel of the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. When we confess the gospel in the creed, when we sing the gospel in our liturgy and hymns, when we eat and drink the gospel in the Lord's Supper, when we pray the gospel in the Lord's Prayer, what do you think is happening to the devil in those moments? He is being bound tightly in chains. Christ has given his keys to his church on earth, and where our sins are loosed, the devil is bound, and he can harm us none. So then, if the devil is bound, how can he be depicted as a roaring lion walking around, seeking someone to devour? Well, is he bound or is he walking around? Well, the answer is both. He is bound and he is walking around. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed, believed, and confessed, the devil is bound and gagged. But wherever the gospel is silenced, denied, distorted, the devil is stalking his prey. So you see, everything depends on the gospel. This is why we resist the devil and his lies, not on our own power, or we resist on our own cleverness or our intelligence, but we resist by confessing the gospel. The central truth of our Christian faith is that God freely forgives sinners by his grace on account of the obedience, suffering, and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that this forgiveness that he gives is received through faith and through faith alone. God justifies, that is, he is the one who counts us as righteous. It is not our righteousness, but it is Christ's. By faith, God has credited it to you. He has sent this righteousness to you. God will surely not punish the righteous. He is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He has called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Do you believe this? And there is no need for us to fall into the trap of pride. God has plenty of glory to give 
and he will. We don't need to elevate ourselves. God will do so in his own time. Is life unfair? Does the problem hang on and continue to hang? Does it appear that God might just be giving you a hard time, even punishing you just because he can? Humble yourself under his mighty hand, for it is in humble faith that you see his grace revealed in the Savior Jesus and that you know that your sins are forgiven for his sake. And through that forgiveness, we find that we are indeed at peace with God. And with that peace comes freedom from the accusations of the devil. Yes, God may try us, but in the end, he will not deny us any good thing. In Jesus' name. And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord.